This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, it's a groundbreaking moment for SpaceX as Elon Musk's company hopes to become the first commercial business to send astronauts to the International Space Station. The Canadian military has released a devastating report on several senior care homes that they've been posted at in Ontario. And new research indicates therapeutic cannabis use could actually reduce the risk of overdose in drug users. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Well, let's talk about the pandemic and the impact that it has had on the environment. On the one hand, we keep hearing about how clear the air is, and that's true. That has happened all over the world where they've had shutdowns. But on the other, can't help but notice more single-use plastics, right? Fewer stores uh, for a long time there that were allowing the use of reusable shopping bags. You've got uh, not as many coffee shops allowing refills in your reusable coffee mug. Uh, So all sorts of stuff like that seems to really tip the balance the other way. The environmental impacts, though, are even bigger than that. Tim Gray is the executive director of Environmental Defense and had a chance to speak with our Nikki Reitmeyer. And he said he worries about government policy changes that could have a major effect on the country's climate goals moving forward. I'm not too concerned about the, you know, the use of single use plastics, you know, as personal protective equipment or in medical system, etc. You know, we weren't anticipating that that stuff was ever going to get banned uh, because it is so necessary in the medical environment. All the bans are, are focused on, you know, disposable cutlery and plastic bags and all these things that are, are really not needed in our world. Um, and, you know, we are still seeing that the government is, is committing still, federal government is still committing to moving forward with the ban. It's just that we have a delay. So, um, you know, our, our concern is really that uh, we not have uh, the government cave in to what we know is a very um, incessant and strong lobbying presence by the oil and gas and plastics industry, which are largely the same industry, um, against this uh, initiative. And, uh you know, we always see this in any kind of crisis is that these big incumbent industries use the crisis as an opportunity to push back very hard on environmental progress. And uh, our concern is that the government not uh, not cave in to that pressure and instead do the things they promised to Canadians to address this problem. Yeah, and we're seeing some unsettling policy changes from government. I mean, look at Ontario in April, the government suspended environmental protection oversight rules, saying that they could negatively affect their ability to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Under the new regulations, the government does not have to consult with the public or consider environmental values as they go ahead and make decisions. But the regulations don't say specifically that those decisions have to even be related to COVID-19 or this pandemic. Yeah, that's very widespread. I mean, you've seen it in the United States. Uh, Alberta has very severe rollbacks on environmental monitoring and uh, any collection of data around uh, environmental risk uh, being posed to the public or to the broader environment. At the same time, they're they're cramming thousands of workers into construction camps and operation camps uh, where COVID-19 is spreading. And they're using the excuse of rolling back environmental regulation as something to protect workers um, when, in fact, environmental monitoring is usually done by you know one or two people in the field where they're not close together so it's it's very disingenuous 
And in the case you uh, you know you said it in Ontario, you know we asked um, government if they could give us an example of an environmental policy you know that they wouldn't be able to consult on because of COVID nineteen, and they said, well, you know we can't tell you that because we don't know all the possible situations that could occur. So you know they they didn't have any example at all about why they would need to suspend uh, public notification and consultation on. Them. Um, obviously, we're we're very suspicious and concerned about uh, anything that does that. Yeah, another example of uh, government commenting on environmental practices during the pandemic that caught my eye was Alberta's energy minister saying that now is a good time to build a pipeline because size limitations on public gatherings mean that there would be a limitation on how many people could gather for a pipeline protest. I'd be curious to hear your opinion on her comments. Yeah, well, clearly the energy minister, you know, is very unconcerned about the health of the workforce involved in building pipelines. Um, and she's willing to sacrifice their health in order to push forward the agenda of expanding uh, the output of, of the oil sands in a time of a climate crisis. Um, yes, uh, you know, people are not gathering for legitimate and lawful protests against, you know, projects like this that would, would damage the climate. But, of course, uh, her government is ensuring that workers who are vulnerable are being forced to go to work um, to build these pipelines. So it, it gives you a, a true insight into the way that, um, you know, that the minister there sees the world. Yeah. Now, it's not all doom and gloom, though. I mean, I think there has been a lot of environmental lessons that we have perhaps personally learned during the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, myself I have noticed that I'm driving a lot less and I try to reuse stuff around the house more often instead of going out to the store to buy something because, you know, frankly, it's inconvenient to be in a lineup waiting to get into a store, but it's also nice just to be able to repurpose things that I already have and recycle. So um, do you think that there will be positive impacts for the environment coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, that it won't all be negative, that perhaps there's some positives for the environment that come out of all of this? Sure. I mean, people have, uh, you know, had to refocus some of their daily activities. You know, people are doing a lot more things, as you mentioned, for themselves. You know, try and buy uh, some uh, plants to put in your garden if you're in Toronto right now. Good luck finding any because people are planting gardens and they're doing a lot more things for themselves, as you say, sowing, baking bread. You know, you see that in the memes online about people making sourdough bread. So all of those things uh, obviously uh, you know, reduce the amount of disposability, the, the amount of packaging, uh, increase the amount of local food, etc. So all of those trends and, and behaviors, if they continue, uh, would be very positive for the environment. Uh, you may have seen that Emissions are down about 17% um, over the, you know, the two or three month period that we've been experiencing this uh, outbreak just because of you know, reduced commuting and reduced travel, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously people changing their habits uh, can result in positive change for the environment. Now, what we hope is that people learn from this and value some of the experiences that they've had. And, and, you know, we're not looking to solve the the climate crisis by having an ongoing pandemic. But it does give you a sense of the ability of of nature to recover. Um, You know, we've seen cleaner water, cleaner air, et cetera. So we need to learn from that and and value the experiences that we've had about uh, having less pollution going into the environment and how we can maintain that after this pandemic. This is Mornings with Simi. 
pretty big event coming up this afternoon at 1.30 our time is going to be the launch of Elon Musk's company, SpaceX. They become, they hope to become anyway, the first commercial business to send astronauts to the International Space Station. And here's one of the other reasons why this is so significant. They're actually launching this mission from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. That's the same launch pad that the the mission to the moon used back in 1969. And as well, this is the first time that you've seen astronauts go to the International Space Station uh, being launched from the United States since the end of the space shuttle program. It's a groundbreaking moment for SpaceX. There's a lot riding on this, so we wanted to break down the significance of this. Joining us now is Mubdi Rahman, a research associate at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. Mubdi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. How excited are you about today? This is kind of crazy. I'm getting the same kind of nervous jitters that I remember from watching spatial launches of Roberta Bonder back in 1992. So it's big. It is big. Okay, so why is it so big, though? Why is this so important? Well, I mean, the United States hasn't had the ability to send people to the International Space Station since 2011. Uh, that was when the last space shuttle, a space shuttle Atlantis, had been retired. So we're talking about a decade since we've, like, the entire world has basically been depending on the Russian Soyuz uh, spacecraft to be able to get things uh, back and forth from the International Space Station. And that's a, that's very critical. One failure of the Soyuz, and then suddenly we've got people lost in space. Right. And so why did the United States not do this for so long? Well, there were many there were many attempts at trying to figure out how to replace uh, the space shuttle. So there was the Project Constellation that happened in the 2010s. Uh, generally, when you build something as complicated as a space shuttle or any sort of space vehicle, by the time it's being operational, you start thinking about what's going to be used to replace it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there have been multiple attempts at doing this, uh, but for a variety of different reasons, uh, they've been cancelled throughout, uh, throughout the years. And so NASA opened up this uh private competition to enable, you know, so Boeing and SpaceX both won contracts to develop alternative space vehicles. And that's what we're seeing uh, finally come to fruition today. So there's a lot riding on this in terms of the the success of this kind of new program that NASA has initiated. Oh, entirely. I mean, there's, especially with an organization as large as NASA and as complex as, you know, doing something as complex as spaceflight, uh, there's a lot of moving gears and buttons and getting NASA, which is a big, you know, old government institution to interface with a fairly new kind of, you know, tech-like company mm-hmm. of SpaceX and getting those, you know, all of those, you know, things to interlock has been a challenge for them. Now, this has been a big leap forward for SpaceX as well, right? Elon Musk's company. Uh, Have they been successful at launching things into space? They have been uh, successful in launching cargo to space, but they've had some notable, uh, mm-hmm. some notable crashes and notable uh, failures. And that's, you know, just part of the thing that space is hard. Getting things into space is a very challenging, difficult thing. I mean, if you think about, you know, the success of the space shuttle, we think of space shuttles as a, this, you know, fantastic 30-year-long successful program. Yeah. Two of the five of them ended up in, you know, being destroyed in flight. Uh, so it's it's a challenge to to be able to do this correctly. Right. So that's why all eyes then are on this. I mean, I can't remember the last time we watched so carefully the launch of anything like this. No, no. I, I mean, I think I remember some people, you know, getting misty eyed with the last launch of the space shuttle, but nothing 
nothing remotely as crazy as this. Okay, so what are you going to be watching for? What's on your agenda? Uh, I'm watching for a successful launch and the reaction of the astronauts, right? So the astronauts uh, that are... Um, that are going to be on the on the spacecraft, the Dragon crew. Uh, they are they are weathered astronauts. They've both been up into space three times. They're NASA astronauts. They've both flown in the space shuttle, and this is a completely new system, completely new technology. Uh, remember, the space shuttles were developed in the 1980s when cell phones weren't really a thing, and now we're talking about uh, you know a very different technology uh, and just seeing how comfortable they are with it, because that's really going to measure the success, whether or not astronauts feel comfortable getting on board something that could be uh, potentially very dangerous. That's so interesting. You say that, though. So the they're experienced astronauts, but it sounds like, does that really matter? Because all the technology is new. Yeah, I mean, there's certain things that are going to, like, just the experience of weightlessness is yeah, going to be. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of the base space things are, uh, are there and you want, and you want experienced astronauts. You want people who know what it feels like to be blasted up into a rocket and not completely, like, uh, you know, just vomit all over the controls. The minute, no rookies. Uh, exactly. Uh, you, you want people who are experienced to do this first run. Okay, so if it all goes well today, then what are the next steps, Mobdu? What are we going to see? What are we going to see after that? So the idea would be that so this is just a test flight that is going to go up to test whether or not they have the ability to even send, and they're ready to send people into space. But the goal of this is to actually bring people back and forth uh, from the International Space Station. So there are going to be future test flights, some scheduled, I believe, later this year uh, to actually dock with the International Space Station and uh, start. Uh, start actually being able to maintain it. Um, and then on top of that, Boeing has its own separate, um, its own separate module and its own separate system that they're going to be starting to test as well. Okay, so now it seems like it's really heating up, right? There's a lot of competition to get up into space. Oh, entirely. And this is just one customer. The way that this entire system is working is right now NASA is not paying for the spacecraft. They're paying for the flight in the same way that when we go on you know, an Air Canada flight or a WestJet flight, right. we don't buy the plane. We buy a ticket. Uh, NASA is doing the same thing. But the longer term goal of companies like SpaceX is to make this more available to a private citizen uh, so that if you happen to be fairly well off and want to pay for a flight into space, you'd potentially be able to do that in the future. So interesting. Mubdi, thank you. My pleasure. Have fun today. That is Mubdi Rahman, a research associate at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if there's one thing we learned on the show yesterday, it's that you out there, you love to talk about crows. It is that time of year when crows are very protective of what's going on in their nests and the baby crows that are there. And it's led to some pretty interesting stories. And Nikki Reitmeyer is here now to continue that conversation. Hi, Nikki. I love when we were having this conversation yesterday. We got a call from a fellow while we were talking about it on air. And he yeah. said, Simi, Nikki, I was literally just, just dive bombed by a crow in Lonsdale. <laughs> I know, I love it. It's so common right of- now. It is. And the amount of feedback I received uh, about this from people saying, yeah, I got a crow story or I have a crow question. I imagine you got a, quite a few emails as well. Eh? Oh, so many stories from people saying this happened to me. I don't know what to do. I had a lady who emailed me to say the surefire way is to carry an umbrella around with you and just wow. like open your umbrella. And I thought, well, that's actually not a bad idea. But on a nice day these days, who would do? Sure, it gives you shade and protects you from the crows. 
Yeah, there you go, right? Yeah, I received a ton of, of questions and, and comments about crows as well, so I thought I'd better call up a, a crow expert nice. and find someone who can really tell us all the info that we need to know about these crows. So from the University of Washington, where they've actually done a lot of research on crows, I spoke to Dr. John Marsluff, and I asked him some of the crow questions that I'd received in my inbox For example, David emailed us to ask, uh, and this is a quote, he said, can you find a crow expert to comment on the history of crows gathering in Still Creek and Burnaby? He said, as long as I can remember, crows would gather there at night in the thousands. They would then fly off in various directions in the morning. So I asked that question to John. Crows roost together at night um, in large groups. So it's not called a rookery, it's a night roost. Uh, a rookery, rookery would be a colonial species that nests in one place. These guys are just spending the night in the trees. They look for places that are usually around a water course, maybe a lake or a pond or a wetland. Um, they like around here, they like willows and um, deciduous trees. So they're probably seeking a spot like that that's in a place where many can gather and have kind of equal commuting distances the next morning. So they do that for safety, more eyes to look out for predators, and also um, to basically have a central location so that many individuals can join and go forage in different places during the day. Interesting. Okay. Now, I also got an email from a listener named Julie, and she heard that Canuck, which is Vancouver's famous crow who's actually gone missing, that his babies and his partner, that they continue to interact with Canuck's former human friend. Is it true that crows can pass on intel? You know, this is a good human, hang out with him, or that's a bad human, avoid hanging out with him. They definitely pass on information, but it's a pretty passive uh, sort of learning. It's not like they whisper, hey, this guy's good, you know, this guy's bad, stay away, this guy's good, you might want to go check him out for food. But by the way that the crows act, either tolerating a person or approaching them or scolding and attacking them, uh, others see that, including their young, and they learn from that. Um, So I think it's it's quite uh, subtle how this learning occurs, and it's one more of just observing and doing what you see other crows do rather than some sort of active teaching. Ah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know why. I always had it in my head that they were having some sort of conversation with each other, like, uh, hey, Steve, you know, this guy leaves the garbage can out on his driveway with the lid off. You should go check out his place. Uh, this makes a lot more sense, though. <laughs> my final question for you as a crow expert is this. What is the number one question that you get asked the most about crows? <laughs> Well, one is, you know, why are they diving at me for sure this time of year? The other is often, is it legal to have one as a kid, to raise one, which it isn't now because of our laws? And, you know, how how do I keep them quiet is another frequently asked question, which when you get the answer to that, you let me know. (laughs) That's Dr. John Marsla from the University of Washington. Nikki, what a fascinating job he has. And I always wonder, how do people end up doing a job like that? How do you end up with a title like Crow Expert? I find that a lot as I do this job because you have to reach out to so many different people on so many yeah. various topics. And, you know, the, the weirdest topic can, can come up and you go, okay, well, we got to find an expert to talk about this. And thing. there is so, one. 
<laughs> yeah, you, you Google it, you type in da 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 da, and, and usually at some university somewhere, there's an expert in just the most obscure topic. I mean, a few weeks back, I talked to a, a puzzling expert out at UBC, Loved it. and you go, I mean, it's a great job, and he was a really cool guy, but how the heck does a person get a title like a puzzling expert? And here we have a crow expert out of the University of Washington, where, like I said before, they've actually done a lot of research on crows over the years. So we kind of talked about this a bit yesterday, and, and uh, Dr. Marsloff spoke about it a little bit just now as well, but that whole idea that crows can recognize faces yeah, and so that they can pass that information on. You so know, be nice. Not. Yeah, exactly. So that's nice. the rule. <laughs> and that research comes out of the University of Washington. From what I understand, they've been doing it, I think, for about 13 years. So they've been dealing with generations of crows. They started with the first Amazing. crows, and then the researchers will wear these masks. And yeah, it's really it's really interesting stuff. It is. Also, your question from David, the listener there, can you find a crow expert to comment on the history of crows gathering in Still Creek in Burnaby? As long as I can remember, crows would gather there at night in the thousands. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> I'm not walking through yeah. Still Creek Park in Burnaby. <laughs> Uh, have you seen that though? Because they do, they flock there no. by the thousands and the thousands. So I've noticed this before, and even my parents live out in South Surrey, and they said crows from their neighborhood will fly out uh, to to Burnaby at night and settle there for the evening. But yeah, it's like something out of a Stephen King novel. It it's is. a little bit eerie, <laughs> but. Uh, I'm going to leave you with a joke, Simi, that I heard yesterday. I'm doing it off the top of my head, so I hope I don't wreck it. He also mentioned, "Can you have a crow as a pet?" The joke goes. It's illegal to have one crow as a pet, and if you have more than two crows, you might be accused of murder. I get, get that. It? I get it. Ha-ha. Get it. They flock in a murder. I it's guess. a murder of Thank crows. You. Thank you. That's a dad joke right <laughs> there. Want, Thanks want. for that, Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> That's our Nikki right right there. If you want to weigh in, you got a crow story for us. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I want to talk about a story over in Ontario that is certainly generating headlines right across the country. The Canadian military w- wanted to do a report about the number of people who'd been called in from the military to work in long-term care homes, what they saw, what they observed there. And it's now been released and it is devastating. This report details claims of neglect inside five different facilities. And for more on this, we're going to chat now with our Ottawa Bureau Chief, Mercedes Stevenson. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. Boy, this is some really terrible stuff in this report. Yeah, it's, uh, I can tell you when I was reading it and um, some of the other documents that we obtained that have not been released to the public, um, I just felt sick. I've read a lot of really disturbing stuff in my career as a reporter, and this was just shocking to me because it went on and on and on, and it was so detailed, and it was so many different um, just horrific allegations of neglect, abuse, lack of training, lack of staff, lack of food, insect infestations, um, infections on people's bodies that hadn't been treated, people being left to cry in one home for up to two hours without anyone checking on them, oh. people choking and aspirating on food and water and still having more put in their mouth while that was happening. Um, one person who was being fed lying down, allegedly, which you're not supposed to do, you're supposed to sit people up to feed them, them, um, give them medication or a drink because of concerns about choking. And that person allegedly choked and died. And the Ontario coroner is now investigating that. 
Um, so there, there's some really, really serious concerns here with allegations about abuse and neglect, uh, that one home didn't even have enough food supplies to feed people properly, uh, that soldiers were in some cases trying to supplement the food on their own and the mm. military was buying stuff and bringing it in. Uh, and I know I've, t- I've talked to people who, who saw that happen in Quebec as well, where the military went out and bought stuff and was criticized for buying food. Well, they're trying to buy food to feed people, um, which is really shocking. And, and the people I talked to said, you know, like, I've been overseas. This is worse than anything I've seen overseas. I did not expect oh. to walk into Canadian homes and find they didn't have enough food and find people um, in diapers that had not been changed in a long time uh, and, and their own feces all over and rotting food in their room, um, crying for help. Uh, and, you know, just really, really hard to read. And also some blatant disregard, as the military put it, for infection uh, protocols, not changing PPE, in some cases not even wearing gloves. Um, one home where they alleged that the management made a Taylor Swift dance video going from COVID positive no. to negative areas. Um, one case where soldiers were allegedly not told somebody had tested positive for COVID-19 and interacted with them for an entire day as a result, without the proper equipment on them for dealing with COVID patients who are infectious. So what is the government um, so saying about all this? Mercedes? It just goes just, on and on. Yeah. We could talk about it for hours. Um, I read a, a lot of pages going through this and uh, you come out of it and just think, how can this be happening? And what has got to be done about it? Because something has to be And If you talk to paramedics, and I've talked to a lot of them over the past 24 hours that have been coming forward, um, they'll say they've been reporting this and complaining for years with no effect and they're very frustrated I think this military report may have an effect because, number one, it's all in one area and it's documented. And two, I think it's just sort of the psychosocial effect of how people see the military. They're seen as very tough. They go overseas. So if they come in and say, this is filthy, this is neglectful, this is abusive, I think that really resonates with a lot of people when they hear that. Uh, We're talking about the military report that has just been issued about long-term care homes in Ontario. Uh, It is a shocking story. You heard Mercedes kind of detail some of the allegations in that report. Unbelievable stories of neglect in five different facilities. The government of Ontario did respond to this yesterday. I know that Premier Doug Ford said the buck stops with him, that they want to get this fixed. But that is huge. When you think about it, how bad did it have to be for the military to issue a report like this? And how did the government not know that this was going on? How could they not have all of these things looked after when you're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and what was going on there? Also, now people are also curious, is this going to happen in Quebec as well? Because remember, the military was called in to help out at long-term care facilities in that province too. So more to come on this if you want to weigh in. And I know for families who have a loved one in a long-term care home, this really uh, hits very close to home with them, right? Because the care that they receive, how they are looked after, that is so important. And you want to make sure that it is the best that it possibly can be. So if you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the calendar days are certainly ticking towards June the 1st, and that is the day when kids are supposed to be, theoretically, uh, in some form or another, back in the classroom along with teachers. However, it doesn't sound like we expect all kids to be back in that classroom anytime soon. So how are teachers feeling about this? Certainly it's another huge challenge, one of several that they have had to overcome in the last six months. Joining us now is Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, to talk more about this. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. How do you feel right now about this idea of teachers going back to the classroom next week? 
Well, I know preparations are underway, and, uh, you know, school districts are getting their health and safety plans approved by government and putting in place the measures that are going to be needed in order to make sure schools are safe spaces. But that varies district by district. Well, it doesn't... Government has set a number of guidelines, and that doesn't vary. Um, And the government approval process has to happen for all districts, so that doesn't vary. Um, There are some, like, small variances. You know, we have, uh, in in terms of the way that some of those protocols are applied, depending on the size of the school and a number of, you know, the remoteness of the school and a number of other factors, but the basic guidelines that are expected to be in place across the entire province are are pretty consistent. Okay, so what can parents then expect next week? So parents can expect that it's going to be quite different. Uh, First of all, the number of students in any given classroom is going to be uh, much reduced, so students aren't going to school every day. Um, It's it's on a part-time basis. There'll be protocols around drop-off and pick-up. There'll be protocols uh, when students are in schools about their movement around the schools. Um, You know, students are spaced out in classrooms. So there's, you know, a number of different, you know, hand-washing is going to be um, a big feature at schools. There's going to be lots of um, hand sanitizers around. So there's going to be a big focus on health and safety and, and, you know, definitely much more than in the past. Um, But I think it's pretty consistent with measures we're seeing in grocery stores and other kind of businesses right now as well. Are you confident in those protocols, like around sanitation and hygiene? Well, the, the key is not in setting the guidelines. The key is making sure they're implemented properly. And so we at the BCTF have been working with our health and safety reps from across the province because it's going to really come down to compliance and making sure those measures are consistently applied everywhere over time. Right. What are you hearing from teachers, though? I mean, I'd imagine that some of them are a bit apprehensive about this. Well, there is a number of concerns, and I think you outlined it well. You know, teachers have been asked to do a number of different things to you know, take all their students to learn remotely. Um, and that has been very challenging, challenging and incredibly um, labor-intensive because it's not like you meet with your entire class um, at one time. Uh, their, you know, work is really spread out really differently throughout the day, and so that has been a big challenge. And now coming back is going to be a challenge as well, um, you know, especially balancing uh, remote learning with in-class instruction uh, and then, you know, also the added uh, issue of, you know, teachers being uncertain about what it's going to look like in schools. Um, we've had many, many years of underfunding, and that has led to schools, you know, janitorial staff being cut. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it's, not, it's no surprise that there's some skepticism out there. Uh, but I think it's, you know, going to take districts communicating carefully with teachers and with families about the measures they're putting into place. Now, we know the government has said to parents, like, you know, this is optional. If you don't want to send your child, don't send your child. What What is there in place for teachers if they also feel like they're not comfortable going back into a classroom? So, and, and that's really up to districts to make sure that they do that communication with teachers to, to basically convince them it's going to be safe. That, that's the employer's role. Um, and then teachers that not just don't feel comfortable but actually have underlying conditions or have some, you know, reason why they can't be working from in in classrooms, um, you know, are looking at accommodations. And so that work is underway as well. 
But, you know, it's justifiable that the concerns are absolutely justifiable. And so districts need to do that careful communication. All right. It sounds like there's going to be, um, you know, a period of time here where things are, everybody's going to have to be patient to work this out. Everyone is absolutely going to have to be patient. And I think it was a wise move of government to say it's optional because, you know, we've seen elsewhere that um, it really varies in terms of the number of students that come back. And, you know, it's, it's for one month, and so parents are going to have to weigh out the benefits um, of sending their children back, you know, versus, um, you know, perhaps they, you know, it, it'll be disruptive to them as well. And so I think there's lots of considerations that parents are giving when they um, decide whether or not to spend, send their children back to school. Yeah. Is that any advice then you can give to parents on that? Well, I think it, it needs to be really carefully considered uh, in terms of their own students' um, situation. Uh, what we are aware of is there's lots of students um, who are, you know, um, in some ways, you know, suffering from the isolation. And we know that's been really challenging for families. And there's been some really challenging situations. And so for some students, absolutely, you know, coming back is going to be and connecting with their students, with, with their teachers and their uh, other students is going to be really important. And, and that's, I'm, you know, I think that's support for most, most students. But families are going to have to really carefully decide what's best for their own child. All right, Terry, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much, Simi. That's Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, talking about how teachers are feeling as we get ready to send a teachers, at least, back into the classroom. For students, again, as we said, that is optional. The government has said, listen, as a parent, if you don't feel comfortable sending your child back, then don't send your child back. Uh, but they are preparing to have some in-class instruction starting June the 1st. And I am curious to hear what from parents about what your decision is on this. Uh, they're making lots of efforts. It's up to the school district to communicate with you about what's going on in your particular district. Now, let me know what you've been told. Are you happy with it? Or do you think, you know what, I'm just keeping my child at home? Simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604 331 this is Mornings with Simi. Canada has an independent judicial system. China doesn't work quite the same way and don't seem to understand that we do have an independent judiciary from political intervention. We will continue to follow and uphold the independence of our judicial system while we advocate for the release of the two Michaels who have been arbitrarily detained. All right, I know, I know there's a lot of irony in hearing Prime Minister Trudeau talk about the independent judiciary, given everything we've learned over the last year. But in this case, we're talking about the system and how it looks on the international stage. Double criminality. That you're going, that's a phrase you're going to hear a lot about today. It's at the heart of the Meng Wanzhou court decision coming down at about 11 this morning. And what it means is, are the crimes that she is accused of in the United States also crimes here in Canada? We're going to talk more about what has been going on during this hearing and the legal arguments in it. Joining us now is Richard Curlin, immigration lawyer and policy analyst. Richard, thank you for being here. A pleasure. Have you been following along here? And, and what is your assessment of where we're at? Well, we're at Judgment Day. The court will likely hand down a decision on double criminality. And as you've said, uh, the crime has to uh, be on the books in both Canada and the United States. Iranian sanctions, yes, in the USA, no in Canada. So the workaround from the American side is to allege fraud, because that's a crime in both countries. However, the issue, the core of the decision will be this. Are the Iranian sanctions 
inextricably bound up with the fraud charge. And the court uh, asked the hypothetical, if the underlying crime related to human slavery contracts, would you have me ignore that and just go on fraud? And the Crown said yes. So I don't think that is going to be the way the court's going to decide. I suspect that Iranian sanctions not being uh, a crime in Canada at the material time uh, cannot serve as a foundation for a fraud charge. And if that's the case, my oh my, we're going to see quite the show today at the Vancouver court. Because we've been hearing that the the plaintiff side of this, the Meng Wanzhou legal team, is feeling pretty confident. Do you think that's why? Uh, well, I, I don't can't speak for their counsel. Uh, the photo taken on the weekend in front of the steps of the court by uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou and her with her friends yeah. is rather astonishing. Uh, that's something one doesn't quite do in the normal course of events. You're, you'd be more likely to see that on a, on a Netflix episode of Billionaire. Yeah, that's. I think that's what also got a lot of people's attention with this case, right? Is that they're that confident at this point. What does this do for Canada? What happens? Uh, what does it say about our system if this does go well, her way? What, what, what people still don't grasp is that, yes, the judiciary is separate from the executive, the political executive in Canada. However, that's not the full story. Even if the uh, decision goes against her, even if she loses that extradition case, outside the judicial system is the politician, the minister, who can choose to pull the political trigger at the last minute, exercise political discretion given under the law, to, for public policy reasons, not extradite. It's sort of like that uh, last-minute death row reprieve. So people should be aware that there's still political control. Beijing rightly should lean on Canada when it comes to that point, but Beijing wrongly leans on Canada while the case remains in the judicial process. Right, but is there really a political option here, given that, as we just heard the Prime Minister say, the one thing yeah. Canada seems to have hung its hat on during this whole process is it's independent, it's independent, we have nothing to do with it. And the Prime Minister is 100% right here. 100%. Uh, we don't. Uh, the, 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 the political elite, our, our elected officials, cannot intervene in an active judicial case. Uh, our society, our, our values, our laws, our charter does not allow that. So Prime Minister's right, and hopefully this is a political plum, because now, problem solved, not the political responsibility, but the responsibility of the judiciary. China will probably ignore that explanation and go with, okay, we got our way, now what are we going to do with these two Michaels? It's a question of when. And a great interim solution would be to slap electronic bracelets on the two Michaels, allow them to live in the Canadian compound at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. Uh, that's a fair gesture of good faith. I, I, I want those uh, two Michaels back in Canada to safety, liberty, and freedom as soon as possible. As we all do, but China has gone out of its way to say, oh, no, 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 these, th- these two things are not linked. And how can they now all of a sudden, like tomorrow, decide that they are? Maybe they have politicians there, too. Well, we know that's the case, right? <laughs> so Sorry. This, is- this occurs in the world of uh, politics, diplomacy, trade negotiations, 
there's information and truth, and one is not necessarily a subset of the other. Okay, so then today this decision comes down, Richard. Is this is this something that you think will just go by the book here? You're not expecting any huge surprises? Um, not me. Uh, I understand from um, some of your colleagues in international media that people have arisen at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in greater China to witness firsthand the televised images of this decision. So this case is making waves globally. All right. I guess we all have to wait and see, too. Richard, thank you for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, ever since we legalized cannabis in this country a year and a half ago, we have been studying it intensely. And we're going to talk about another one of those studies right now that talks about therapeutic cannabis use and what that means for drug users. Joining us now, Stephanie Lake, doctoral candidate at UBC's School of Population and Public Health and the lead author of this study. Stephanie, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell me, what did you take a look at? So uh, we have two kind of large studies. They've been ongoing since 2005. Um, They're studies of people who use drugs in the downtown east side. And what we did, we starting a few years ago, we we, um, started asking people who reported cannabis use um, to kind of describe the nature of their cannabis use. So, for example, were they using it only kind of to get high for intoxication purposes or were they using it for another purpose, such as uh, to manage pain or to address kind of insomnia or other therapeutic reasons? And what we found was that over this kind of two-year period, we found that about, um, so there was a lot kind of, of reasons for cannabis use. I think we could say that cannabis use really existed on a spectrum from strictly um, non-medical use all the way over to strictly therapeutic use with a lot of overlap in between. So, for example, we found that about um, in about half of interviews, um, uh, participants res- res- reported um, using cannabis for intoxication purposes. But we also found that about in, in about one-third of interviews, participants reported insomnia, stress, pain, and nausea and appetite uh, or, or an appetite stimulation as reasons right. for their cannabis use as well. Did that surprise you? Get so many people using it for therapeutic reasons, not just recreational reasons. Yeah, I think that was that did come as a bit of a surprise to us, just because um, in this kind of population, we we knew that cannabis use was common over the years, um, but we never really um, looked beyond that. It was kind of just one one of the many things that we asked about in our study, but we never really started. Um, digging a little bit deeper to try and understand um, details about cannabis use until more recently. And so I think we're just starting to really understand um, the complexities of of cannabis use and the relationship that individuals have with cannabis um, in our study. Okay, what comes next then? So what we did with, um, we had about 897 people who used drugs who also reported cannabis use um, over the years. And we conducted over 2,000 interviews with these individuals. And so we used their responses um, about kind of, so they could have responded um, many different reasons for their cannabis use, not just one. So they could say, for example, that they used for intoxication, but also for pain relief. And so we looked at the combination of reasons for cannabis use in all of these individuals over time. And we applied a statistical technique. It's called a latent class analysis. But what it does is it basically uh, tries to create kind of discrete groups of of, uh, users based on their combinations of uh, reported reasons for use. And so we found uh, four kind of major groups. One was a strictly recreational cannabis use group. 
Another was uh, people who were using for non-pain-related therapeutic purposes, like nausea and appetite stimulation. Uh, third group was a group using strictly for pain relief purposes. And then a fourth group was a group using for all for pain relief purposes, but then another therapeutic use uh, on top of that. And um, I'm going to focus a little bit on, on some of the findings from the pain right. group because I, I do find that this is um, something that we've been um, studying a little bit more intensely in recent years. Yeah. And so we did find that in this pain relief group, um, they did have a lower likelihood of using heroin every day. Yeah. And interestingly, all, they also had a lower likelihood of reporting a recent overdose. And so this was interesting to us because... Um, we have another study that we conducted recently where we did find that people who use drugs in these cohorts who are living with pain, if they're using cannabis every day, they're actually at a lower likelihood of uh, using huh. illicit opioids every day as well. That is um, so, so this, interesting. Actually. Yeah, it kind of lines up with, with our previous findings as well. It really yeah. does. I, I love hearing about it. We'll have to have you back. Stephanie, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Stephanie Lake, doctoral candidate at UBC School of Population and Public Health, the lead author of this study that is so interesting that therapeutic cannabis use could actually reduce the risk of overdose in drug users. Uh, something that, you know, you wouldn't really think about, but they're doing some groundbreaking research on that. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, every day we wait in the afternoon for the update from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix to find out how did we do? What are BC's numbers? How many new cases of COVID-19 do we have? And we know the numbers have been pretty good. But in one place in particular in BC, the numbers have been extraordinary. It has been more than two weeks since there has been a new case of COVID-19 on Vancouver Island. But there are concerns now with ferry service ramping back, back up again. So are residents on the island a little worried that there could be a few more cases that come along? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Richard Stanwick, the island's health chief medical officer. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you. Those numbers on Vancouver Island are, are great. You must be pretty pleased with that. Well, I think primarily pleased for the population that we have done so well. As you mentioned, it's been two full incubation periods, uh, uh, basically 28 days. But for the South Island, we're actually hitting up over 50 days without um, any uh, new cases. So uh, it, it does speak to, the, as, as you mentioned earlier, Dr. Henry, and, and certainly the Ministry of Health putting in those um, public health measures, the, the social distancing, the, the lockdown, that in, in some ways we were very fortunate that uh, we were able to have a, you know, a, a population that very much embraced um, those, those measures. And I, I do have to give credit to our colleagues in Vancouver and Fraser. So as we watch them uh, deal with the, the individuals coming from um, overseas, first of all, from China and then other locations, um, we were able to take the lessons that they had learned and apply them with great vigor um, and, and certainly um, learned a lot from them and were able to apply it to obviously uh, significant success. And, and a lot of the credit and I, I really want to basically make sure that it's given are to the contact tracing teams the people that did the screening here on the island it does speak to uh, if you have a team that is willing to go uh, the the extra kilometer i guess to be politically yes. correct rather than mile <laughs> um it, you know you can you know, track um, these cases down so we knew uh, what to look for whether it was cases from the, the dental call, uh, conference whether it was people coming up from seattle whether it was foreign travel um, again, these were all signals and the teams and our health authority and the population um, recognized that this is where the cases were likely coming from 
And by responding, uh, we were able to, uh, and, and right now, again, we appreciate it could change rapidly. We've had a total of five guests on the island, and to the best of my knowledge, I think we're discharging our last patient from hospital today. That's amazing. Congratulations on that. Are you, are you though, are there any concerns, given that it sounds like ferry service is going to start ramping up again? Very much so. That we, we recognize that uh, it's so easy to have a reintroduction. And, uh, we have uh, situations where uh, we could have um, outbreaks without the, the proper control measures being put in place and, and the, the physical and social distancing being observed, whether um, it's individuals who are incarcerated. We saw what has happened in, in Abbotsford. Um, we saw early we did have uh, people coming from Seattle. So if the border opens up in June and even travel from Alberta, where they're still struggling uh, significantly in terms of controlling their numbers. And um, we've certainly had some imported um, cases come into BC from work camps in uh, Alberta. So uh, it's not just international travel, but clearly from other locations in Canada. Um, while we certainly our borders are not closed, mm-hmm. um, it's this idea that people need to recognize that on the island, and I think through the rest of British Columbia, we're asking people to observe those 14-day quarantines. Uh, it's amazing how many people scoff at it, but it is absolutely uh, what we need to do until we get a vaccine or a treatment. So I take it the contact tracing teams then are going to continue to be very busy. Oh, very much. They're on their toes uh, right now. It's it's a quiet time. We're telling them to you know catch their breath. Uh, our screening is down to about 200 um, individuals a day, uh, which is quite light compared to uh, what again Dr. Henry is calling for. That in the fall, if we're looking at a second wave. Uh, we would have to ramp up to to be the 20, part of that 20,000 uh, cases, uh, 20,000 screenings per day. We'd have to be doing about 3,400 on the island. So uh, a lot of this time is now being used for planning because we can certainly not rest on our laurels. We have to be ready and anticipate um, that this virus is certainly uh, has the potential to come back. And we don't want to lose what we've gained. Uh, just to put it in perspective, um, we've had one really bad weekend there a number of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, where we lost five people to overdose in Victoria alone. Um, and that, that was equivalent to the total number of people who passed from COVID-19. So it's, it's also all the other public health programs that we either deferred or perhaps not paid as much attention to that, uh, of course, is causing worry. And the last thing we want is a measles outbreak because we've mm-hmm. fallen behind in immunization. Yeah, that is so true. But Dr. Sandwick, thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. And as I say, we're going to keep trying to keep those numbers down so that maybe, you know, in the, at the end of the year, you'll call and say, how did you guys manage to do it? <laughs> That's what I, will, I will be following up on that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. That is Dr. Bye-bye. Richard Stanwick, the island's health chief medical officer, talking about uh, how well they have done on Vancouver Island. As you heard him say, he really attributes that to the help and support that they received from Vancouver Coastal Health and Fraser Health, giving them the heads up on what they might see coming to their communities. But on Vancouver Island, more than two weeks since they've had a new case of COVID-19 and the last case is being discharged from the hospital today. Uh, so they have done an amazing job there. But again, can't let their guard down because ferry service is starting to ramp up again. So they will be keeping a very close eye on that.